Hello, Gabby with you and welcome to another episode of the My Possible Self podcast. My Possible Self is a mental health and well-being app that brings together content from world-leading mental health experts designed to help you learn how to improve your thoughts, feelings and behaviour. The app's clinically certified content has been shown to reduce anxiety, stress and low mood. And currently we are offering the My Possible Self app and all of its content for free. Just type My Possible Self into the app store and we will appear. But back to the My Possible Self podcast, our objective is to support the app in helping you to live well by conducting conversations with thought leaders in the mental health and well-being space. So let's get into this episode's subject of discussion. Today we welcome social and personality psychologist Tom Curran, who is an expert on the topic of perfectionism. Research shows that perfectionism can actually hamper success and happiness. Perfectionists tend to beat themselves up and wallow in negative feelings when their high expectations go unmet. And those with perfectionist tendencies can find their mental health deteriorating, being led down a path of depression, anxiety, addiction and life paralysis. When I spoke to Tom, I was surprised to learn what an increasingly widespread problem this is and how complex the world of perfectionism is. Let's proceed with the episode. Well, Tom, welcome. I'm feeling the pressure for this episode to be perfect. Thank you. You're a social and personality psychologist, a lecturer and assistant professor in the Department of Psychological and Behavioural Science at London School of Economics. That is such a mouthful. It is. When I went for my interview, I said, I'm not going to uh, list my full or the full job title that I'm applying for here because it will take the full interview <laughs> uh, for me to get through. To put it simply, I'm a social psychologist and I'm particularly interested in personality and uh, my main interest or area of interest is perfections. What did you want to be when you were growing up? How do we get from... Little Tom to the Tom I'm talking to now. I'm interested in the journey. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's quite a journey. Uh, the short version is that uh, when I was younger, I, I wanted to be a football player, as every young lad does. And I realised quite quickly that wasn't going to happen. So my next ambition was to be a PE teacher because it's kind of football, but without the mm-hmm. the Jeep and the sex scandal. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was going to go through various different routes, maybe go to a teaching college, maybe go to university, I wasn't really sure. And then I decided on, I'm going to just go and study sports. So I did at uh, Bedford College. And that's when I uh, started really my interest in psychology. One of the areas of sport is psychology. It kind of captured my imagination. I thought, oh, this is really interesting. You know, what do people what do people do sport? Why don't they do sport? How can we get them more physically active and all the rest of it? And it became quite of an interest of mine to try to understand and unpack people's motivations. So that was that was where it all started, really. And then I was fortunate enough to get a postgraduate uh, offer of doing a PhD at uh, the University of Leeds. Mm-hmm. So I went and did that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then kind of got focused on perfectionism, found that to be a topic of interest and personal significance to myself. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to study that in the context of sport and athletes because mm-hmm. it's a high-performance environment. Um, and then from there, I kind of just, I just wanted to understand more about this, like, this concept of perfectionism. And as you look out into the world, you can see it becoming 
a real big problem, you know, uh, from, from about 2007 to about 2010, maybe 2011, I was doing a lot of work in the area, feeling like quite perfectionistic myself, seeing perfectionism in my friends. And I thought, wow, okay, well, maybe we should, maybe we should measure this. And so when I was at Bath, um, I did a big study looking at perfectionism, how it's changing over time, and we saw that it's increasing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then really that kind of blew up overnight. And, and the next thing I'm, I'm at the London School of Economics and I'm talking to you. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been a bit wow. of a journey, really. I'll say, as soon as you mentioned sport, that's probably one of the biggest breeding grounds for when perfectionism can go too far, I would assume. You touched on that you've got you've had your own sort of experience with that as well. Did it ever get too unhealthy for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I I definitely say that I'm on the perfectionism spectrum for sure. Um, it's kind of weird for me because it didn't really start early. It started as I sort of entered into a more middle class environment and suddenly realised that, oh. crikey, you know, like <laughs> I feel about a million miles behind, and I sort of stepped around some of the hallowed halls of these really sort of well-esteemed universities and kind of feel very inferior so uh, instantly in that in that environment I went in on myself and tried to lift myself above other people because that's kind of what the inferiority complex is and I felt like a bit of an imposter Uh, and so I started to feel like these kind of tendencies were taking over a little bit um, Mm. making me turn into somebody that I wasn't Um, and, and it was kind of curious how how from there it started to unfold and started to bleed into more sort of negative mental health uh, outcomes, things like uh, low mood, um, anxiety, um, bouts of panic. Um, and so very quickly it spiraled into something very, very negative. And it was that point when I realised that, yeah, this this might not be, you know, this thing that I'm gunning for, which I feel is something that, you know, is, is uh, I guess, appreciated emphasized within mm. modern culture it's really not not healthy certainly not for me anyway it's, it's creating a lot of conflict and a lot of negative health outcomes for myself um and i kind of wonder whether that might be the case for other people too mm. and particularly in the environment that i work to see it a lot um so it kind of sparked an interest really yeah. the word perfect gets thrown around a lot and you perhaps don't think of it as a negative word but what you have sort of really dived into over the past what 10 years is is how it can be something that's detrimental to your mental health absolutely i mean it's it's one of those things where having lived through it and i a lot of your listeners would also have i'm sure share similar experiences mm-hmm. um i guess you could describe it as a favorite flaw maybe it's mm-hmm. kind of a begrudging acceptance that on the one hand it provides us with that energy that we need to be excellent or exceptional or whatever but on the other hand, it comes with this kind of baggage of loads of self-imposed pressure and a lot of self-criticism and all the rest of it. But it's kind of the point, right? Like all of that kind of self-imposed pressure is kind of the point. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this culture that kind of emphasizes winner takes all, zero-sum competition, you know, you've got to throw everything forward and try as hard as you can and all the rest of it, all these kind of very well-meaning, but nevertheless can be quite detrimental messages that teach young people that they have to be exceptional just mm-hmm. to stand still. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really where it, it starts to unfold. And, and what it's, it's okay, I guess, if you're doing all right and you, you're, you're going up the ladder. 
as soon as you hit a stumble or a setback or something happens in your life that wasn't expected, you can really, really, you can really, really find it difficult. So, ah, yeah. I mean, perfectionism a lot of times is in the eye of the beholder as well, right? It's how you perceive something to be perfect. Is there a fine line between being a high achiever and a perfectionist? Yeah, well, I think the thing, the starting point here is to understand what perfectionism isn't before you before you really get in deep understanding what it is and what perfectionism isn't. It's things like conscientiousness, striving for excellence, trying to do the best you can. All these things that we commonly associate with perfectionism. Perfectionists do do those things. You know, the reason why we associate this with perfectionism is because they are high achievers and because they do put themselves forward and because they do strive relentlessly. But the reason why perfectionists engage in this behaviour is because they feel imperfect, they feel defective, they feel like um, they're not somebody of worth in the world. And so they engage in those excessive behaviours to try to prove to other people and the world around them that they're not flawed, that they're not imperfect and that they're worth something. And of course, that's essentially the essential motive of a perfectionist is to perfect an imperfect self. Mm-hmm. And that's very different from conscientiousness, from you know, extroversion, from perseverance, from flexibility, whatever, where whereby the 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 energy is about, you know, doing your best and leaving something dazzling in the world or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, perfectionists aren't they're not interested in what they leave in the world, they're not interested in the outcomes. They're, all they're interested in is soothing that inner conflict and soothing wow. that inner in a sense of effectiveness. And that's uh, and that's why it's so problematic. I didn't realise, and it was only doing a bit of research on you and listening to some of your other interviews on various podcasts, that procrastination is very intertwined with perfectionism. Yeah, I mean, it's per- perfectionists are... This is the paradox of perfectionism, I suppose. Um, a lot of people associate it with high achievement and some perfectionists sometimes will achieve very high uh, grades, uh, be excellent performers, etc. But the problem is when you look at perfectionism over the piece across the life course and across different domains, you find a very small correlation between perfectionism and performance. And in some cases, that correlation doesn't exist at all when you aggregate all, you know, all of the possible studies that have been done on it. And that's curious because you, you think that they would be high performance given the amount of effort that they put forward. But mm-hmm. there's two reasons, really, they don't perform. One is the procrastination point that you're, that you're uh, making here. Um, perfectionists will put everything forward on the first try but if they fail and they feel like they're going to come in under challenge and that if they may fail next time around then they'll withhold all of their effort because it's so embarrassing it's so shameful for them to fail that to save face they'll remove themselves from the situation right. and that bleeds into all sorts of self-handicapping behaviors uh, things like um, putting off important tasks, things like putting off things on our to-do list, ghosting is a mm-hmm. common one of the, the perfectionists. They can't quite, you know, they don't want to let people down. And so they'll often just completely ignore. And, and that's, you know, it, it feels, if you're on the receiving end of that, it feels quite painful. But um, mm-hmm. it's also important to remember that the person who's doing that is is is, is doing that because they themselves have a lot of conflict that they, they feel unable to. Um, they just don't feel they could cope with uh, rejection or the sense that they've rejected someone else. So there's a lot of self-handicapping behaviours is what I'm trying to say with, yeah. with perfectionistic tendencies that we see, and that's why they don't perform um, as well as we you'd think they would. 
Well, you've worked with a lot of young people. So what happens if what you've just talked about um, applies to, say, a test? Does that mean that if somebody has these perfectionism tendencies in an unhealthy way and they don't do well, they're not going to try and retake the test or it's going to cause issues for them and in, in, in their learning? Yes. So we see this all the time at, at, at universities. Um, it's really it's really quite sad because I, I work with a lot of young people and uh, the amount of young people who are just slumped over my desk in, in, in unconsolable misery uh, over a, a test score that wasn't quite high enough or whether, you know, some feedback that wasn't overly positive is, um, is, is worryingly high. And, and it's not that every student's like that, of course, but there is enough of them to, to for us to know that there's there's, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the one of the things that we're seeing in the data is because they put so much pressure on themselves, because they feel an excessive amount of judgment from other people. The 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 impact of a lower grade than they expected is just compounded both by the criticism that they put on themselves and the judgment that they feel that come from other people. So everything's compounded. And so when you're under that pressure cooker, mm. then the natural reaction, if you're a patient, is just put off, put off, mm. put off, put off. Because if I put it off, I don't, I, I'm not going to feel that uh, weight of pressure, you know. But of course, obviously, that's the wrong thing to do because you just, you, you store up more pressure for later down the line. What advice do you give to that student who comes to you in floods of tears and you can see it's not just, you know, they're really bummed out because they didn't do as well as they wanted to something where it's, you know, really affecting their mental health? Yeah, I guess I'm curious for anybody listening who is recognising these signs or maybe they're a parent and they're sort of recognising the signs in the in their kids what do you say to them? I think the first thing to do is let them fail. Oh. Uh, the instant reaction of most of us in modern culture is to turn that failure to something else, anything else, and almost, you know, discipline it with the iron fist of redemption mm-hmm. to say, you know what, you fail, but just learn from it and grow and keep growing and keep growing. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that message is fine. Often in failure, there is nothing to learn. You just screwed up. You had a bad day. You had a bad night's sleep. You came up against someone more privileged. Mm-hmm. And there was just nothing that you could do. And yet messages like that teach us that we should be afraid of failure and that, that there's a certain stigma that's associated with failure. And it, and it shouldn't be allowed to wash through us as a joyous reminder of what it means to be a fallible human being, sharing the planet with other fallible human beings, each with their own enlivening chinks, flaws, and curved edges, and whatever. Mm. So for me, the biggest thing is to just let them have the failure. Just let them experience it. Let them let it wash through them. And, and don't try to instantly pivot and move it on to something else. Mm. I think there's a lot of solace that can be found in failure. I think there's a lot of uh, soul searching, a lot of recognition of what really matters mm. in those moments. And so I'm, you know, this is a very, I guess, radical perspective because a lot of, you know, a lot of people chunter on about growth and got to keep moving forward. And this is a very, this is a very of its time, you know, like it's all about growth, 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 growth. And what else, what else is concerned about growth? Well, it's the economy. We've got to keep growing the economy. GDP's got to keep going up. It can never go down. 
So we're just replicating what is going on in broader culture and the way that we think the world works. And we apply that to ourselves. Mm. And you get people like Obama and very famous celebrities and influence and all the rest of it with their coaching and life hacks and all this sort of stuff. But I think it robs us of something very precious, and that's fallibility and the ability to fail. Um, so I think for young people, my biggest message is that it's okay to fail. You know, wow. It's okay. And, and actually, you know, don't, don't think instantly about how you've got to turn that into growth. Yeah, there's time for that. But in this moment, just reflect on, on what it means to be a fallible human and reflect on what matters in life. That's so profound. Yeah, that's my kind of take on it. Um, I'm not a clinical psychologist. So I won't go into any sort of more uh, detailed uh, psych- psychological advice than that. But, but I just think we need a philosoph- philosophical shift. Uh, in the way that we talk and deal with that. I think that's amazing because it is, if it, if you're th- talking about this happening to a loved one, you want to comfort, you want to nurture and and, and you want to distract. So just to let them be and sort of sit in the failure for a while and then come out of it the other end is, um, I've never looked at it that way before, but I, I really like it. I want to move on to touch on the three subcategories of perfectionism, self-orientated, socially prescribed, and then other orientated. And I feel like we have to jump to the socially prescribed perfectionism first, because this, and again, you're the expert, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine this is the biggest, most widespread problem that you can see. Mm-hmm. Is it like a tribal sort of breeding ground? I mean, I think about the Kardashian clan, I can see you smiling, <laughs> but like the image they convey, it's hard to achieve that. And they've got ridiculous amounts of money, but they're sort of seen as like the holy grail of influencers, especially online, which we, you know, can jump into as well. But yeah, socially prescribed perfectionism. Please talk a bit more about that. Well, yeah. And and, and, and you're making some really, you're hitting on some, what I think are really important areas of uh, social analysis um, and the way that we idolize celebrity. Um, I don't think it's any surprise that we see levels of social prescribed perfectionism. So social prescribed perfectionism for listeners is the social strand of perfectionism. It's the, it's the sense that others expect me to be perfect, okay? And they're judgmental when I fall short of those high standards. Um, and we're seeing this particular element of perfectionism rise at, at, at exponential levels, okay? So those that will be familiar with uh, obviously exponential curves now that we've uh, enjoyed a pandemic for the last two yeah. years so you'll be aware of what that means that means that now it's really skyrocketing it's moving at a fast rate of knots from a very small incline between sort of 89 and 2007 as soon as the recession hit it's just it's just going exponential curves. so there's really a, an issue there young people are telling us they feel a lot of social imposed pressure we feel that the social environment is excessively judgmental excessively expected the social prescribed fiction is, is a worldview okay so we carry it around with us it's kind of like a, a pair of spectacles that we view the world um and it could be objective it might not be objective um it's it's the way that we see the world however i would argue that i i, I don't think there's any doubt that Young people are experiencing now uh, pressures at, at levels that we've never really seen before. And you, it isn't just social media. It's in consumer culture, advertising. Uh, it's in education, mm. uh, school, college. And it's in the broader economy. You know, uh, They don't have the safeguards that their parents' generation had. They don't have big unions. They don't have a government there that's, that's going to help them if they fall on hard times. Mm. Uh, and so you add all that up and they're kind of the first generation really just fend for themselves. 
in a in an in an hostile and hyper competitive world uh, where they're bombarded with images of perfection on a daily basis, just a daily basis, an hourly, a minute basis, when you take it down to other social media. So, you know, it's it's really difficult, and I don't think I don't think it's any surprise in that culture we're, we're seeing young people uh, tell us that these pressures are wretched enough. So, would you say that social media is the devil? Because that's how I like to affectionately call it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, yeah, I, I think we're in agreement. Um, I, well, there's a lot of debate. There's a lot of debate. Gabby, I mean, about, you know, it's, it's helpful as well. I mean, the, the, the connectivity, yeah. especially during the pandemic, I'm from the UK, but stuck in America or have been stuck in America. And so, you know, there's certain platforms that have been super useful but you pay you pay the price because you're constantly being bombarded with adverts the digital footprint they've followed you everywhere so it's like you've looked at a pair of shoes and then you get like 20 different shoe offers and it's an invasion of privacy as well and um i feel like it's becoming more sinister than positive but i'd love to know your take well, well, my take for this worth is that social media is just an outcrop of advertising, and advertising has been around now for many, many decades. And the base, the base purpose of advertising is to see the sense of disaffection, dissatisfaction with current life affairs, so that you purchase your way to happiness. You know, we have our phone and our social media account with us everywhere. So the point of social media is not what it used to be. Remember, um, me and you. Um, will remember when social media originally came on the scene and it was for university students to enrich offline relationships. Mm-hmm. So you tag people in photos from the night before, you yeah. log in with trepidation on the morning after yeah. in complete fear about what your friends tagged you in. What you got MySpace for music. Oh, <laughs> yeah, MySpace. Like, Tom was our friend, another time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We had think pokes. We didn't really know what the hell they meant, but we had them. Um, yeah. And it was it was it was really fun. Actually, mm-hmm. it was really fun. Mm. The problem is, it wasn't very profitable because keep enriching offline relationships meant that we spent more time offline. And if you want to make money, yeah. you've got to you've got to keep people online as much as possible and offline as little uh, as, as little as possible, right? Mm-hmm. So the business model of Facebook changed as soon as they realised that the money was in keeping people on the platforms. The way they did that is through obviously attention capture, social comparison, very popular, uh, and importantly within that uh, within that model, there, there's there's an imperative to consume, consume. That's the important thing. We're we're there. Our attention is being captured to consume. And to bring it back to perfectionism, it's like to consume so that your life becomes like this perfect person in this perfect life that we're showing you. Um, and I can fall for it. I can fall for the traps, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I need to be wrinkle free, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but that, but that's why I say it's an outcrop of advertising because we go back to the original purpose of advertising. Advertising not changed for decades. It's still about comparison, making us feel like we're you know we're not as good as someone else, or we're not as pretty as someone else, or with someone's more fashionable than us, or someone has better holidays than us. In in every instance, it's about seeding that dissatisfaction so that instantly we're fed that advert and we will consume mm-hmm. so it's really just a tool of advertising except the dangerous thing is that we're both the products and the consumers we're the people that bring people to the platforms in the first place and so our value gets judged on likes mentions follows etc etc mm-hmm. so 
I'm with you on social media being like you know, there's many, many debates. Even academics have these debates about oh, you know, da, 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 brings people together, yada yada. yada. I, I can't see anything other than social media being a negative impact on people's life. If we can get social media back to its original purpose, I think it's a really, really, really good thing. Really, really good thing. It's just been you know, once it gets commandeered by the interests of money, it, it it turns into something, something quite dark. So, um, I don't think that the basic premise of social media is bad i really don't it's just when it gets taken over by other other well that leads me on to asking you about influencers and specifically those that are irresponsible with their posts i'm thinking about the kardashians again i swear i'm not obsessed (laughs) but it made headlines both sides of the pond when chloe kardashian recently Um, kicked off because somebody posted a picture of her in her bikini completely untouched so no airbrushing no filters no sculpting Um, it was just Chloe au natural but she was furious to have her followers her millions of followers seeing her as she truly is versus the image that she's portraying to everybody. This, air quote, perfect version of herself. Doing what you do, you must get frustrated on social media where you think, oh, you are being really um, harmful. It, it, it is going, but I think the thing is, like I say, uh, it's, it's kind of no different, really, to how things have been. The, the difference is that it's everywhere now and you can't escape it. So where it used to be billboards and look at Chanel advertisements, you know, the way they depict perfume as if you're going to have one puff and your Brad Pitt in the Enchanted Forest with a sledgehammer or something like that, you know, <laughs> just completely ridiculous, like mm-hmm. idealisms of a, of a completely ridiculous lifestyle that's pinned to a, a product. That's been going on for decades, that unrealism, that difference between, you know, the expectation reality. Same with McDonald's, you know, you look at the publicity for the for the burger, it looks wonderful, and then you get the real thing and it's just a complete disappointment and it's the yeah. expectation reality again. And this is just absolutely And really bad for you. <laughs> and really bad for you as well. So, you know, th- this is the expectation reality that's going on in advertisers all the time. Same same with the Kardashians, it's just the art lionization of celebrity. Um and, and you know, sometimes you get a glimpse behind the curtain when these things happen. Mm. And you see that it is manufactured and that these posts are calibrated to maximise likes, mentions, follows. So there's nothing real about it. It's all a sham. Mm. A really famous influencer called Asana O'Neill in 2015 left Instagram in disgust at the way that it was all manufactured. Uh, got very little coverage at the time. Many people don't know about her because I think young people are just like, it's normalised, it's all for the gram. But, but back in 2015, it, it wasn't quite the case. And she did a really brave thing and and underneath each post she talked about how you know she got was got up at the crack of dawn took about 500 photos for this one perfect shot and that's what this photo is you know it isn't reality it isn't me mm-hmm. um and it's not and i look smiley but i wasn't happy if we can get more influencers being honest brave and open up like that i think it would really open the do- open the door on that industry and definitely and, uh, and help to you know just peek behind the curtains a little bit and help young people realize that it is all manufactured yeah. Young people are doing it to each other as well. I've seen groups of people in their early 20s or late teens staging these pictures, especially where I live, there's a great backdrop. And and I'm guilty of it too, because I think I have to sort of, you know, 
live up to that hey look at me kind of thing but yeah yeah i guess i guess the takeaway is to have that in the back of our head it is manufactured it's not real and that can apply to our loved ones as well that deep down we know that their life isn't as perfect as they're portraying absolutely i think it's very tempting in today's culture to assume that everyone else is perfect uh, but i'm not mm-hmm. and everybody thinks that and i think it's really important to gain outside and just to know that you know um it's not your fault like uh it's just the way the world is right right now and and um the way the world is designed actually the way the economy is designed to keep you uncertain to keep you doubting to mm-hmm. keep dissatisfied so mm-hmm. that you keep purchasing consuming coming back to the platforms it's not your fault if you feel not enough that's exactly how the market economy wants you to feel need you to feel actually Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a consequence, I think there's a message to young people about this whole social media and, and the culture and, and the precious experience, just understanding that, mm-hmm. you know, just recognizing that that is how the world works. That, you know, that sounds like quite a bleak outlook, right? Like, oh, you know, there's not a lot we can do about that. That is the world. The world is actually, it's a much more positive outlook. Mm-hmm. And if you try to change your life with these life hacks and self-improvement, all the rest of it, mm-hmm without having your eyes open to the root causes of those those difficulties, then you are going to find at the end of all that work, still a hostile, judgmental, image-conscious world right where you left it. Mm-hmm. Nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. So first of all, realising that there's a bigger context to your feelings releases a lot of the weight of mm-hmm. personal responsibility and then begin to work on uh, the difficulties that you have, but it always has to be that way around. With the surge in trends for cosmetic procedures as well, like, I mean, when it was first introduced, I think, like, Botox was aimed more at women, say, 40-plus that had lines to freeze, whereas now it's, it's no, you need to start when you're, you know, you're 20, when you've got a lineless face already, and the, the big lips is, is very trendy. And the number of cases of, like, body dysmorphia must be through the roof would you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this, the self-presentational stuff is definitely um, an issue. It, come, it comes with a package, so to speak, of, of, of being high on, on the perfectionism spectrum, in the sense that you need to not just be perfect, but present perfectly too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's obviously reinforced in, in modern culture and, and, and worrying amounts of young people, like you say, turn mm-hmm. into plastic surgery. And, and, and that, that's a disturbing trend. And that's where I think but, it goes back to being a bit tribal as well, like a group, you know, you're in a group of friends and it's like somebody gets their lips done and, and then somebody else gets their lips done and then, oh, I'm going to get mine done because they've both got big lips, <laughs> you know, like I think in tribes. Oh, yeah, we all, we all behave how, how people um, behave and, you know, we want to fit in, you know, that's a basic need, we want to fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... That's why culture is so powerful, you know, like um, when culture is slotted between people and the way that people interact and impacts on, on how we view other people and how we view ourselves. Um, you know, that's why it's so important to recognise first and foremost that the way we feel is, is very much culturally uh, conditioned. You know, it's, it's not something that comes from within. You know, the way that we are it has massive impacts. Like, the, you know, my working class uh, upbringing, has led to a lot of conflicts in my own life because I've had to unlearn a lot of things 
um, to, to, to survive in a middle class uh, world that has completely different values, completely different morals. So I don't, didn't just move away from my community, I moved away from the values and histories that come from that community. Wow. And that's what happens when you move into a different culture. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, you know, if you if you put young people in a in a very image conscious culture where people are getting plastic surgery to become a normalised thing, then it will it will become a problem. And just one one last thing in regards to the socially prescribed perfectionism: does the workplace fall under this subcategory of perfectionism too? Definitely, it's it's really you know everywhere is there's pressure so like we've, we've spent a, a few minutes there on, on social media but like that's just one, one part of, of of culture that where pressures are, are quite fierce you have education which is another and the workplaces which is another mm-hmm. um and we know that workplaces are getting more pressurized because mm-hmm. young people are telling us that the concept of a career now is becoming foreign to a young person so this is this is something that we as as i guess um millennials a big kind of understand but not fully that the young people coming through now will job hop 10 20 mm-hmm. times in the course of their career they won't stay in one place and they and they won't have a permanent contract a lot of them they'll be working in the nascent gig economy they'll be freelancing they'll be hustling because that's the nature of work now you know this uh, inflexible precarious mm-hmm. um not lack of reg- regulation um kind of they they, they badge it as freedom uh, and choice, they say, you know, they're going to give you freedom and choice to do what you want, but they, but at the same time, they take away stability and permanence. Mm-hmm. They don't. That's what they don't tell us, but that's what they've done. And so we feel very rootless and feel very restless. And young people feel that, and it's a lot of pressure on them right now to work in that environment because there's constant worry about, am I going to have a work in the next six months, and can I go on holiday because I'm going to compromise opportunities mm-hmm. to make money over here? So they're worrying about things that other generations just simply never had to worry about. Yeah. Um, and and the workplace, as a function of that, the, the culture of work now has become uh, very uh, psychologically tough for young people. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just another component of what we're seeing with social perspective. Yeah, I massively can relate to this. That has been my experience pretty much for the entire pandemic. I've been on a uh, contract for a huge, one of the biggest in the world, actually, uh, brands. And everything you've just said is exactly what I have experienced for most of the job. I've been working remotely and there's this you know, you get emails coming through at 10 o'clock at night or on a Sunday. That particular person I'm thinking about who was consistently seemed to be working nonstop. Like he ended up getting a promotion and it was like rewarded for him probably like never leaving his house at all. I mean, I would say to my mum, oh, it's eat, sleep, work, repeat. And it's like you can't leave the office because the office is where you live. Um, and I think... A lot of employers are taking advantage of that, but we're like not doing ourselves any favors either because we're too afraid to sort of speak up. It's almost like you get rewarded. The better you do, you get rewarded with more work to do. That's what I've experienced, and it's a really unhealthy culture. Yeah, and it, but it's normalized now for young people, right? Like mm-hmm. this is kind of the world they're entering into. So, um, I, I presume I don't know uh, Gabby your background, but I'm sure you've. you've been, you've been free and you're freelance yeah 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 so mm-hmm. you'll understand you'll understand that whilst that brings a lot of benefits 
um, it also brings a lot of insecurity too. Mm. So um, it's one of those things where if, if you've got that kind of character type where, you know, you enjoy that and you're able to do it, then it, it, it works quite well. Mm. But if you haven't, then a more stable type of employment maybe suits you better. But unfortunately, those opportunities are dwindling for yeah. young people and, and most of them now forced into a kind of more precarious existence. And well, as I say, it works for some. Um, but, mm-hmm. but doesn't work for everyone, and, and I do worry about those for who, you know, security and, and permanence is, is valued, and, and they just simply can't access it. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to jump straight into um, self-orientated perfectionism. So this is imposing the strict personal standards on oneself. Can you, you explain a little bit more about about that? I mean, that's the harsh critic in your own head, right? Yeah. So self-oriented perfectionism is. I guess what most of us reach for when you think about perfectionism, that kind of quintessential leader, striver, excessively hardworking colleague or student or whatever, um, comes from within. It's a sense that I need to be perfect. There's a, there's a, you know, it's more than just a wish or a desire. It's a requirement. It's a need mm. uh, to be perfect and nothing but perfect. Um, and alongside that uh, need to be perfect comes a lot of self-criticism where we haven't lived up to our own standards. So what can we do for ourselves to quieten that voice in our head? Yeah, so I mean, you know, we can all relate to self-criticism. and mm-hmm. uh, Well, there's the famous line, you're your own worst critic, right? Absolutely. Uh, I am my own worst critic, uh, for sure, when I haven't done something. That's a standard that I expect of myself. I'm very harsh on myself. And that's just been a theme really throughout my my whole life because I felt the pressure to perform and I felt, you know, if I don't, then I'm going to be found out. Uh, I'm going to not get the you know, the promotion, the job, whatever it might be. So there's always a sense that you're perennially on the edge and that, you know, one slip up and that's it. Can I just piggyback off that and ask you about your TED talk really quick? Because when I watched it, our dangerous obsession with perfectionism is getting worse. So that the, the, the the title had me in straight away but when I watched it I was like he's not stuttered once he's not stumbled across his words and and I even though I'm a, a presenter by trade public speaking scares the bejesus out of me <laughs> I guess yeah. I'm much more comfortable in a studio so for you talking about perfectionism and because you you must be aware when you're doing a TED talk right that it's not only the people in the room like you're YouTube video of it as it's what reached three million viewers and counting or close to that. So um, that must have been really scary. Uh, it's the most frightening thing I've ever done. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm glad it doesn't come across like that because it definitely felt like that um, when I was when I was giving it. And, and I did make I did actually make a little mistake in the middle. But this is again goes back to the thing we're talking about. Like they edited it out. And I always think it would have been quite nice to leave that in, given uh, given the topic. Mm. Just this idea that, you know, it's okay to slip up. Um, but they edited it out, which was a shame. Oh, we're getting all the tea today. Um, <laughs> okay, finally, other orientated perfectionism. So this is projecting to, onto others. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this, so this is kind of like the outward phase of perfectionism. So we expect other people to be perfect and we're judgmental. Mm. Um, shout out to mum if you're listening <laughs> <laughs> we all know another impression so for sure um but uh it's yeah it's 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 less common than the other two um but nevertheless we see it we see it quite a bit actually what's really interesting is that you uh 
across all the data and see uh, high levels in males and females, and they confirm uh, what you will. There was a lot of data to suggest it's increasing in our in our study. So, um, but from a lowish baseline. Um, so yeah, we're, we're not just seeing self-imposed pressures increase, but we are also seeing uh, pressures that are placed on other people. If we identify that in somebody that we know, probably a boss. Um, maybe a loved one are there any takeaways for our listeners about how we can like get the person to stop imposing these ridiculously high standards and putting that kind of pressure on us so I think the the biggest thing is um, so so I've already it always uh, rolls back is it so it's not it's nothing to do with the person receiving it it's all it's all about the internal working of the person who's dishing out the high standards and it's a kind of a surrogate for their own self-worth a kind of projection, so to speak, of their own perfectionism and their own need to be perfect on other people as a way of making themselves feel better about themselves. Which, when you look at it like that, then there's something. You know, it's, 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 it become you become not necessarily sympathetic because they're still dishing out ridiculous standards, but you de- tend to look at the, the 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 problem in a slightly different way. And and you know we've all had, I'm sure, experiences with bosses that have unreasonable standards, and we've all we've all been around people like that um, and it's very re- relationally um, destructive mm. but at the same time the root of it isn't coming from a place of I think this is always a thing to remember uh, it's, it's not coming from a place of um, harm uh, unless you know it's fused with some kind of narcissism and obviously you've got the sort of Donald Trump syndrome but mm. we, won't, we won't go there mm. but if, it, if it's simply just higher uh, standards then I think acknowledging and understanding that um there's a deeper reason for it that's more than just you is I think really important because you know it's nothing personal it's the only thing you can do yeah something that I found really helpful on the my possible self app is um there's a series on like communication and there is actually some really helpful tips on and how to convey how you're feeling to you know co-workers and if you've got a scary boss um I thought that was really like helpful so Going back to mental health and perfectionism, I saw it in in your TED talk about how it can compromise mental health, depression, anxiety, suicide, body disorders. Does it ever get diagnosed by your GP? What what are you seeing now that I think finally people are having more open discussions about this stuff? Yeah, I think it would be great that people uh, recognise perfectionism isn't as positive as maybe sometimes they think it is and they can contribute in most cases to compromise mental health. And seeking help in that context is really, really important. Now, look, look, listen, most of us won't suffer from the clinical and most of us will interfere with enjoyment of life. And in that case, we can put things in place to try to, uh, I guess, silence some of those perfectionistic tendencies and mm-hmm. um, but for people yeah it does create significant turmoil it does create a lot of conflict and this was certainly the case for me anyway in, in which case mm-hmm. i'd recommend that you totally talk to someone go to your gp get get some talking therapy get some help mm-hmm. reach out because that's so so important and it's really really helpful now you know perfectionism is i like to think about it as a spectrum so mm-hmm. um, you know there will be there will be clinical diagnostics that those who are clinical psychologists will work with all the time. A lot of them are around things like unrelenting standards and the scheme of unrelenting standards. So that'll be something that will be measured if in a clinical diagnostic. But perfectionism as a kind of broad trait is more of a sort of a spectrum, and, and whether you sit higher or lower is what what I like. We're we all on it, but we're all on it exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so my take home really on, on on this is that 
you, there are certain things that we could do and put in place to make make our lives easier and to kind of silence those perfectionistic tendencies, especially self-critic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but if it is interfering significantly with your life, then it's definitely definitely a good idea to, to talk to someone to seek that professional mental health. And the holistic ways of of sort of self-soothing would be. Is it things like going and taking a walk? Is it shouting at your own critic to shut up? Like, <laughs> what can we do? Well, there's loads of stuff. I mean, the first thing, and we've talked about this, but personal responsibility, this is a world that tells you everything's your fault. And, you know, if you don't succeed, it's your fault. Uh, if you're not pretty enough, it's your fault. If you don't get the good enough grades at school, it's your fault. The first thing, before anything else, is to recognise it's not your fault. Okay, now... That, that's not to take all of the accountability off, off the individual, but that's just to say that a lot of the things you feel, okay, and particularly in your approach to imperfection and, and the, our attitude to imperfection, is socially conditioned by a broader forces that are beyond our control. That's the first thing. It's not your fault. A lot of the way you feel about perfection and, the, and a lot of the, 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 the misery that comes from imperfection is, is conditioned, not anything that's at all defective about you that's the first thing the second thing is once we grasp that and if we can grasp that then we can really start to deal with even the most powerful misery manufacture that this world can throw us because once we understand that and we know that it's a sham mm-hmm. then we can start to we can start to build ourselves authentically in the world without having to put on the mask without having to wear the armour of perfectionism and go through the world iterating, tickering, uh, filtering, airbrushing, all the rest of it, because we could be us, we could be real, we could be, we could be who, we, who we are. And I think that's, for me, that's the biggest thing. Perfection can be quite bleak. We talked a lot about some of the bleak elements, but actually there's a hope in this. And that's if we can get closer to our real selves, if we can come closer to our authentic self, that's to say that we can can be vulnerable, we can be courageous and brave, we can put ourselves out there mm-hmm. um, and try mm-hmm. uh, and not be afraid to slip up, screw up. You know, that's the bravest thing you can do is to put yourself out there, be vulnerable, be yourself in this world. It's the bravest thing you can do, but it also means you're standing up for values which are far superior to your culture. You're saying, I am who I am with all my chinks and all my flaws. And, and that's what makes me me. That's what makes me unique. That's what makes me the person that I am and different to other people in this world. That those imperfections are, are what makes me, gives me my identity and character. And if we can embrace those, and if we can, and if we can move ourselves closer to the real self, then it's a recipe for widespread happiness. And I think a lot of young people are starting to recognise this: the Be Real movement, the Authenticity movement. These are things that are eminently positive and should 100% be encouraged. Um, and so those are the two things for me, really, recognising where those feelings come from and it isn't your fault. And then trying uh, to take off that mask, to, to, to move ourselves closer to who we really are and, and try to push ourselves out there and be brave and not afraid to be bothered. Mm-hmm. And sit in failure. And that's cool too. <laughs> yeah, because once you push yourself out there, folks, you're going to fail a lot. <laughs> Just a disclaimer there, you're going to fail more often than you don't. Okay, yeah. In zero-sum competition, most people are going to be also ranked. Okay? Failure is statistical probability. It's regression to the mean. It's going to happen. And the more you put yourself out there, the more it's going to happen. But in a way, you're desensitizing yourself to what's inevitable anyway. And you're reminding yourself that it's okay. You're human. You're fallible. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that for me is such an important message. 
Tom, that's amazing. Thank you so much. I know you've got a book coming out that we need to look out for in is it winter time. Yeah, I'm just finishing it up now. So I'm writing a lot at the moment, so it's, it's in anticipate to come out around winter time. But uh, keep an eye out. My Twitter is uh, Tom underscore Curran. Tom spelled T-H-O-M. So um, follow me and you get totally and, and of course we will shout about it as well when the time comes on our app um thank yeah you. thank you again this has been really insightful no problem thanks for having me Hi, Gabby, back with you. You've made it through to the end of our episode on perfectionism. This has been the My Possible Self podcast. If you don't already follow us, find us on the gram. We are at My Possible Self. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>